Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Join Hoda Kotfi for a brand new season of her podcast, Making Space. For season five, I am making space to talk to people who are providing a sense of hope and inspiration when life changes course. Uplifting conversations with inspiring individuals like NFL legend Drew Brees, singer-songwriter Ziggy Marley, and today's show co-anchor Savannah Guthrie as you have never heard her before. I found faith more viscerally, not because the bad thing didn't happen, but because it did. I promise you, like me, will leave these conversations with some wisdom for your own journey, empowered and inspired to make space in your own life. New episodes of Making Space with Hoda Kotb are released every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Zivi Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This 30-minute podcast features a new author interviewed by me every single day, 365 days a year, for about 30 minutes. I am also the publisher for Zibby Books, which publishes 12 books a year in fiction and memoir. Our books are already out now. You can check it out on zibbybooks.com. And we have a magazine called Zibby Mag, where we have lots of wonderful essays and lifestyle features. That's at zibbymag.com. We have classes at zibbyclasses.com. And I recently opened a bookstore in LA called Zibby's Bookshop at 1113 Montana Avenue at 11th Street in San Monica. I hope that you are able to enjoy some of our other offerings. But this here podcast is the basis of all of it and started in 2018. And no matter what I do, this is basically my favorite thing. Enjoy. Beth Nguyen is the author of Owner of a Lonely Heart, a memoir. Beth is the author of three previous books, the memoir Stealing Buddha's Dinner, and the novels Short Girls and Pioneer Girl. Her awards and honors include an American Book Award and a Penn Gerard Award from the Penn America Center. Her work has also appeared in numerous anthologies and publications, including The New Yorker, The Paris Review, The New York Times, and Best American Essays. She teaches creative writing at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Welcome, Beth. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss Owner of a Lonely Heart. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me here. (laughs) Okay. Can you please tell listeners what this book is about? As I was telling you, I read it several weeks ago. I couldn't actually wait to dive in. I've been so excited about it. So anyway, tell everybody all about the book and what made you even write a memoir? This book is about a realization I had that I realized that over the course of my adult life, I had spent less than 24 hours with my mother. And that realization 
made me think about what it meant to have a relationship with my mother. I didn't know her when I was growing up, but I only met her when I was 19. And I decided that I needed to trace the hours that I had spent with her. And all of this happened because, you know, my family, we were refugees from Vietnam. And when most of us came to the United States after, uh, you know, at the end of the, the war in Vietnam, my mother did not. She stayed in Vietnam. And so there was this huge separation. And uh, so I grew up, my sister, sister and I grew up not knowing her and not knowing anything about her. And just, she was this huge silence. And it wasn't until we met her when we were grownups and we started talking to each other about it that, you know, I realized that this book had to be a memoir and it had to be a way of looking back on the past in order to try to understand who my mother was, you know, what my own relationship with her was all about and what's my own relationship with being a mother too. You said in the book that you had never really felt like a refugee until you became a mother, right? Yeah, that was also a weird realization. I had a lot of realizations while trying to write this book, which took a long time to write. Yeah, I when I was growing up, I it's probably because I grew up in the 1980s. It was a very different time when people just did not talk about refugees in the same way we talk about them now exactly. And so I felt a great deal of shame about being a refugee and I tried not to talk about it. I tried to sort of avoid that sense of identity. But when I had children, I realized that, I slowly realized that, you know, the identity you have is just, it shifts all the time. And so my concept of motherhood was so abstract until I became a mother. And then it made me think about mothers in general and my stepmother and my grandmother and all the mothers that I've known in various ways and various capacities. And that made me think about concepts of refugee-ness. What it means to be a refugee, that status was very connected to me um, in terms of what it means to be a mother and to just sort of inhabit a role for myself that is, you know, that can be somehow separated from what everyone else thinks it looks like or should be. Well, in the book, you detailed how your family got to the United States to begin with, what that must have been like, even for your dad. And you put yourself sort of in the shoes of everybody before you so that we as the reader kind of understood what that transition was like and and all of that and how you didn't even question that your mom wasn't there until you. it was later in life, right? It's just like, okay, so she stayed back and this is what happened. When you first reunited with your mom, and I know you identify your stepmom as your mom, but your mother, or your, you called her like biological mother or some mm-hmm. other word that I'm forgetting. Tell me what it was like. And I know you wrote about it, but seeing her again and, and realizing like this woman, like what had her life been like and just all of that stuff. Yes. The story of how my family got here is so dramatic and strange. It's, I am in awe of it actually, because I didn't experience it myself because I was a baby. But the fact that we you know, literally fled a country and didn't know where we were going to end up and we're in refugee camps and we're resettled in Michigan where I grew up and I had a stepmom and I didn't meet my biological mother until I was 19. And, you know, she had come to the United States on her own as a refugee. And she was a huge source of, of the unknown when I was growing up because nobody talked about her. And we didn't talk about her because we didn't talk about difficult subjects back then. We didn't talk about the war. We didn't talk about sex. We didn't talk about anything that might, you know, be 
controversial or have make people have feelings. So when I finally met her, I was in college and it was not a dramatic story, you know, and that's something I write about in terms of how we have expectations for things like motherhood, reunions, and what we're supposed to feel like or what it's supposed to be like. But when I met her, it was just sort of ordinary. And I kind of realized, oh, I just, I don't actually know this person. Like, I know that we're related. I know that she gave birth to me. I know that she's my mother. I'm her daughter. What does that mean? What does that feel like? I had no, I had no roadmap for that. And so writing kind of helped me figure out uh, what it all meant. You had this one like very stirring moment where like you and your sister were like in bed together, like huddling one night or something and like quietly saying like, well, do you ever think about her? Right. Wasn't there something that yeah, you, you barely wanted to even go there, but like in the quiet, right. in the dark of night, every so often you would think about it. Yeah. When we were really little, my sister is uh, a couple years older than me. We would sometimes sleep in the same bed and every once in a while, very, very rarely, we would ask each other like, you know, do you think that she's alive? You know, do you, who do you think she is? But it was a whispered conversation. We knew even as children that we really shouldn't be talking about this and that the grownups around us had told us it was an off limits subject. Wow. I mean, it is so interesting what you said even a minute ago about this meeting being ordinary and all of the pressure that we put on certain relationships. And it doesn't always show up. I mean, this happens also when you have children, right? There is this notion that you will immediately fall in love with children and that that you'll be overcome with feeling just the way you should feel about your mother. But it doesn't always happen like that for kids either, right? There are all these things we're supposed to feel as mothers and daughters. And mm-hmm. what what if we don't in any of those realms? Exactly. <laughs> like, you know, I was so not prepared for the amount of anxiety I was going to feel as a mother about every single thing and constantly thinking about mortality and just... (laughs) I know. When people started talking about the concept of postpartum anxiety, I was like, okay, I have 16-year-old twins and this is like, am I still postpartum? You know, I'm still in the throes of postpartum anxiety at this point, but (laughs) like never let go of my breath. Oh, I guess it's permanent. (laughs) I think think it might be, I'm like, my mother can't be walking around with me at age 46 holding her breath. I'll tell you that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, your family's journey here was unlikely and harrowing and and all of that. And yet here you go living this like sort of ordinary life, right? Regular life and transplanted in a way. and, And then you have to like make sense of it all now. So when you decided to write this book, tell me what that feeling was like and and even why why at this point in your life you decided to write this book. You know what having this story felt like a secret that wasn't a secret and I think in a way that that's what writing is like. Writing is about secrets, it's about figuring out our secrets, it's about dealing with the that which is concealed and bringing it forward. And you really have to, a person really has to be ready to yeah. write all this stuff. You can't, <laughs> you, it's, it's maybe not great or healthy to, to force it. In a way, you can't force it. it. You know, you have to be emotionally ready. And who knows when that happens? I had written a memoir almost 15 years ago now called Stealing Buddha's Dinner that was about, you know, growing up in Michigan. And my mother was a little bit in it, but not really. She was a, you know, kind of an ancillary subject in that book. 
And it really just took me all these years to figure out how I was going to write about her. And was I ready to do it? And what was the narrative path forward? And that's, it only happened when I had this understanding that this, I've spent so few, so few hours with her in my life. And then I decided to, I had to narrate those hours. Like, this is when I visited her in Boston. This is when I saw her next. And it was difficult. It was really hard to recognize my own, I guess, uh, my own silence, my own culpability, and then just feeling a lot of sort of a sense of guilt and failure, you know, which is something that we feel all the time, I think, as mothers. Yeah. But that sense of like, oh, I just, I'm doing things wrong all the time. I'm not, I didn't maintain this relationship. I didn't say the right thing. I'm not being a good enough mother, daughter, refugee, anything. And I think writing was the only way that I've ever known how to you know, make sense of those feelings. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, grownups. The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery. Perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishful podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. So sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic Tongue Twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Tell me about your non-writing life and and how how you got here and what you do when you're not writing and you know between your your memoirs essentially and all of that. So my non-writing life, I'm teaching writing. <laughs> <laughs> so far removed. <laughs> <laughs> Which I, I really love doing. I, I teach creative writing at uh, University of Wisconsin Madison and I love it. And I've always loved talking about writing. I've loved reading other people's books. You know, I love that whole engagement. 
it's it's a very different process from from being a writer because it you know you get to focus on other people's work and that's so much more fun and doing the research and <laughs> thinking about other people's lives. I love reading fiction probably more than any other genre and it's been my biggest influence. But um, yeah, my the rest of my life is pretty much uh, focused around um, <laughs> books, reading, teaching, uh, my children, and baking. I do a lot of baking as a uh, sort of like a therapeutic hobby. What do you like to bake? I like to bake sort of a, the most elaborate thing I can think of oh. <laughs> or that I, that I can attempt. Really fussy things, you know, uh, layer cakes, with a lot of decoration, you know, tarts with like a, or pies with an elaborate kind of crust. Yeah, the, the fussier it is, like homemade gingerbread houses that I have to like design and then make the gingerbread and everything. The fussier it is, the more comforting it is for me. And I am not exactly sure why, but probably, <laughs> probably, you know, a trauma response. <laughs> I have that same feeling with websites. I love tinkering around with websites, moving oh. them, building them. I, now I want to like just start making them for other people, even though my own website is terrible. I like, I, I sometimes just go in and like mess around with like individual pages. And I don't know, there's something like the time kind of stops and I just like move things around and focus yes. and I'm like totally in control of it. I think it's, you know, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. That's it. There's a lot of specific focus. Yeah. Anyway my maladaptive thing. <laughs> but Wisconsin, Wisconsin is enormous. So are your class sizes huge or how does it work? Or do you have small seminars or what is the teaching like? Oh, the creative writing classes are small. Okay. And I mostly teach grad students, which is, we only accept six grad students, MFA students a year. So we, we have a very small focused program and it's wonderful. I, I love I love my colleagues and I love the students. So it's it's been good. I didn't know that I was going to live in the Midwest again because I was in California <laughs> before this. And that was weird because, you know, usually people who grow up in the Midwest, a lot of times you're like, I want to leave and see a different landscape. And I did. And But when I visited Wisconsin, I was like, oh, this is so strange. It feels like home. Aww. And how could that possibly be that the Midwest feels like home? But it just reminded me that, you know what, we're, we're actually always changing. Yep. And it's good to allow ourselves to do that. And it's good to admit that, you know, we can change our minds. Yep. I love that. I've been biting my tongue trying to not ask you why you have a giant Keanu Reeves pillow behind you, but I have to, I have to ask now. <laughs> okay. My Zoom background, it is governed by this Keanu Reeves pillow that my friend, the writer Amy Fan, sent me right before lockdown started. And it's sequined. And it was such a fun, wonderful gift. Everyone loves Keanu, right? So I thought I would just put him there as my Zoom background. And I decided that he should never leave because everyone loves Keanu. Unless something bad happens and he gets canceled, you know. But he's just going to be there as a lovely, you know, generous, uh, kind figure, you know, looking over us. And uh, yeah, he gives me comfort. I like to look in. Instead of looking at myself, I don't want to look and see myself in Zoom. I want to look at Keanu. Who wouldn't? I mean, there you go. You have to find a way to like get in touch with him and tell him about all this extra publicity you're giving him to the entire writing community. <laughs> you know, who knew? That would be so great. That is how this whole thing has to end. You have to have him on your Zoom. Oh my goodness. Would that that would be uh, this is one of the greatest things ever to happen in my life. Oh my, there's gotta be a way. There's gotta be a way. Keanu, are you out there? Come to my Zoom. <laughs> 
found my personal Zoom room. (laughs) Somebody listening might have a friend who knows a friend who has an agent, blah, blah, blah. I think all the actors are striking anyway, aren't they? They'll, They'll have lots of free time. So anyway, that's so funny. So when you are busy teaching and then you turn to your own work, can you suspend like a critical eye long enough to get the words out? Or are you always going over each sentence to perfect it? Or do you like get it all out? I mean, given that it took what, 10 or 15 years, maybe it's the latter, but let me know. <laughs> I'm not usually a slow writer, but I think the reason why it took so long for me to write this book was because I wasn't ready. And I was really trying to find my way through. But when I re- had the narrative realization, then the book came together pretty quickly. It just that it took me years to get to that, I see. To that realization. Sure. Okay. Yeah. And I think that's just somehow, sometimes a book happens that way. You know, sometimes we do not actually have control over how a book is going to come forward. And I would rather be patient and wait for that than just, you know, force a narrative that doesn't actually work. So that's what I was kind of doing for years was trying to make a narrative that didn't actually, it didn't, it wasn't good. It was, there was nothing to it. It was just sort of, you know, all over the place. So it, it took, it took a while to, to be ready, but, you know, I work in a very undisciplined way. You know, I work when I have time. I work around my kids, got really used to that. I work really well on airplanes. Me too. You know, <laughs> especially like a nice four hour flight. That's I like know. A, it's like a mini writing residency. It's perfect. I love flying to California. It's the best. I've gotten so much done on those flights. Yes. yes. So much done. And I try to be as harsh with myself as possible when I'm writing. I don't write in a pretty font, you know, I'm a Times New Roman kind of writer. <laughs> so I'm not fooling myself too much. <laughs> and I try to write as much as I can just going forward. If I don't know something, I I use a method that I call the TK method where I just say, you know, TK you know, more information here because <laughs> I'm just trying to get somewhere. Otherwise I'll just stop myself and go over the sentence so many times. And that's, you know, that's better done later on in revision. Interesting. I love it. Are you reading anything great now? I'm reading actually my, they're on this, the shelf, the three books I'm reading right now. Um, one of them is a nonfiction book called To Name the Bigger Lie by Sarah Viren. It's such a good book. Thanks so much. And that's a nonfiction book. And then Holding Pattern by Jenny Shea and The Apartment by Anna Menendez. Those are the three books I'm reading right now. Amazing. So you like having a few going at the same time? I do. Yeah, for different moods. Yeah, me too. like to have a lot going on. Amazing. Um, And are you going to work on another book? Do you have another book coming? I'm actually, you know what? I was working on a novel this past uh, year, but I suddenly started working on another nonfiction book, you know? I don't know how that happened. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. I do know how that happened. It happened because I got divorced. <laughs> That's how it happened. And so I started thinking about sort of definitive relationships in my life. And yeah, so then I was like, oh no, I'm writing another nonfiction book. So yeah, writing a nonfiction book, writing a novel. We'll see what gets finished first. Maybe it's some sort of blend. <laughs> Auto-fiction. Auto-fiction. <laughs> I'm also divorced. Could talk about that offline. <laughs> and how many kids do you have? Two. Two boys. And how old are they? They are 14 and almost 12. Amazing. Yes. It's fun. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, you know, I say that with like a, some apprehension because <laughs> everyone else tells me, oh boy, you know, 
There's a lot. There's a lot coming. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I always used to freak out about the teenage years, but you know, they don't just happen out of the blue. You know, you don't go from like, like I have an eight-year-old still and I'm like, oh my gosh, he's going to be a teenager. He's never going to talk to me again. It's going to be a whole thing. But like, he'll be a teenager and it'll be just one day after he was the age he was the day before, which is one day after that age. Like it never happens that fast and like it can't spiral out of control. It's just one day. So it's not like- That is a good attitude. I like that. Otherwise I get too anxious, but- Oh yeah. Yeah. Anyway. All right. Well, maybe one of these days we can, you know, clink glasses of Zoloft or something and uh, <laughs> try to relax about our kids and divorces and, <laughs> and all the rest. <laughs> what it means to be a mom. I don't know. All of it. Anyway. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, you say it all like that. Yeah. Okay. Clink <laughs> glasses of something. That's for sure. <laughs> all right. Well, Beth, thank you so much. Thanks. It was so nice to meet you and so fun to chat. And congratulations. Your book was absolutely beautiful. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay. Take care and bye to Keanu. Bye. Okay. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 